Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Kids TV has a lot of very specific rules. There are things you can do, such as teach right from wrong, good from bad, and there's things you can't do, like enabling an addiction to chocolate, staying up late to watch violent movies, rejecting the entire school system, and insulting your elders. Now, obviously, the list of can'ts is a lot more fun. Author R.A. Spratt, otherwise known in real life as Rachel Spratt, is a big fan of rule-breaking and has garnered international success for her rebellious creations Nanny Piggins, the world's most glamorous flying pig, and Friday Barnes, the 12-year-old girl detective, both of whom were born from Rachel's deep-seated rejection of the well-behaved cartoons and kids' TV shows she was writing at the time. Given Rachel started her career in political satire and stand-up comedy, it's been quite the journey. Hello, Rachel. Thank you for joining me. Oh, hello, James. It's wonderful to be here. <laughs> I sound so impressive when you put it that way. <laughs> now, Rachel, your career started around 1997 mm -hmm. on the back of what I understand has been referred to as 10 terrifyingly good jokes. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. I went to do uh, work experience at Good Newsweek and because I was studying communications out at Bathurst and it was like my seventh internship because they said, just get out there, get experience. And I really wanted to be an assistant director. So um, I wanted to work behind the cameras and all that. So I turned up at Good Newsweek and I said, I really want to work with the assistant director. And they said, she's not here today. She only comes in on show day. And they said, why don't you go sit with the writers? So I went and sat with the writers. And of course, being writers, they didn't make eye contact or talk to me. You know, they're all men who are like 20 years older than me. And so it was like kind of boring. So I went and sat in my office. They gave me an office so that they wouldn't have to look at me. So I had my own office and I sat there and I was reading women mag women's magazines and I had a go at writing some jokes. And I handed them in at the end of the first day and uh, the head writer had already gone. He hadn't even said goodbye. So I just sort of put them on his desk and I went home. And the next day I came in and no one spoke to me and I was sitting reading women's magazines and the head writer just like burst into the room. And I was like, oh, my God. And I started to put my feet down and I tried to hide the magazine. And he, he was this big guy and he had like this leather jacket and he slammed my page of jokes on top of the filing cabinet with his big meaty hands, like boom, on the table. And he said, these jokes are frighteningly good. <laughs> and then so they asked me to come back for another two weeks and then they asked me to come back for another six weeks and then I ended up staying three years. So, wow. yeah, and it was the best apprenticeship ever because all I did all day for three years was write jokes and jokes are like these little nuggets of writing, like haiku, you've got to get so much meaning into them. And they're tested before like a live studio audience of 400 people at the end of the week. And you just, I just learned so much in that time. Well, this was the era of Bill Clinton as well. <laughs> so, so do you remember any of the particular Oh my jokes? gosh, yes. I remember the day that the blue dress, the revelation <laughs> about the blue dress with the stain was in the paper. And normally what happened was we would go through the newspapers and we would cut out the stories we thought would be good to write jokes on and the head writer would go through it and there was a team of about six or eight people and so he would he would share it out. So, you know, someone would get waterfront reform and someone would get, you know, the, the budget. And uh, so you wouldn't all be writing on the same thing. But the day the blue dress came out, the head writer sat there and he said, it would be unfair on you as professionals to not let you all write on this because this is one of the greatest days ever for comedy writers. So we all got to write jokes about Monica Lewinsky in the blue dress. And um, I'm actually, I, I was a, like, now I'm a children's writer, but I did get to use a graphic term describing Bill Clinton, what he did with Monica Lewinsky that had never been used on the ABC before. 
which I cannot repeat now. I'm a children's author, but I was quite, <laughs> when I was 20, 22, I was very proud that I got this fairly disgusting graphic term on the television. Well, you, you were working with Paul McDermott and, and Mikey Robbins, who, yes. who at that time were at the peak of their powers. You know, oh, yeah. Paul had come off the, um, the, the Doug Anthony All-Stars, so he really was one of the already established legends of Australian comedy. What was that like for you as a 20-something, oh, early 20s writer? it was just fantastic. There was so much energy in the room because they were doing breakfast radio on Triple J, so like everyone would listen to in the morning and um, then – People would tune in to get their week's worth of news. Like some people didn't watch the news, but they would watch Good Newsweek and get their week of news from that. And you've got to remember, this was before the internet took off and before all these other news sources took off with Facebook and all that. So politicians would all watch Good Newsweek to see what we were going to say about what they'd done that week. So the prime minister was watching and the politicians were watching and they'd come in and say, what do you do that joke about me for? So it was this, all this energy and we get celebrities coming on, we get the politicians coming on. Uh, like I got to be Paul Bishop and Hugh, Hugh Jackson and all these amazing people. It was, yeah, it was a crazy first job. So how does that writer's room work, though? Because I imagine there's an idea which is to beat the joke, which is someone brings a joke to the table and then everyone tries to beat it, like get on top of it and make it better. Well, we had a weird style. Like that's a very sort of uh, – in, in America they have like a room where they sit around and they pitch jokes and they riff. We had this weird style where we all sat in a room and we actually sat – our desks were around the walls and we sat with our backs to each other and we didn't speak to each other all day. <laughs> we would just sit and literally write. It was really, really boring, <laughs> boring to watch um, because that was just the way we wrote. And it was actually my husband, he joined the team about, like he wasn't obviously my husband at that stage. It was the first time I met him. Like, it was, I'd been at Good News Week for over two years and I had gone to Hong Kong to visit my brother because he was graduating from university. And I came in and I'd taken the Monday off work because I was flying back from Hong Kong. And I came in and um, there was these two new writers had been hired. And one of the older writers, who's like 20 years older than me, but I was senior to him in terms of management. And um, he came up to me and he was shaking with anxiety. And he's like, Rachel, there's two new writers in the writing room and they're talking to each other. <laughs> and he's like, it has to stop. I can't work under these conditions. And I was like, okay, Steve, I'll, I'll take care of it. So the very first thing I ever said to my husband was, I walked into the writer's room and he was talking to his writing partner. And I said, you're going to have to get out of the writer's room. You're making too much noise. <laughs> and he just fell in love at first insult. And uh, the rest has been history. 17 years later, still together. Why is it, therefore, that so many comedic writers, or comedy writers, I should say, or even comedians, are actually introverts on the inside? I don't know. I think it's I, – I, I don't know why we're introverts. I know our brains work differently and um, we see things and we make connections between things that other people don't. And you've got – and we're sort of introverts. Oftentimes, we're, you know, we're not good at social interaction, so we probably don't seek it out. And um, – I know I personally do tend to say inappropriate stuff a lot, which is, is very problematic now. I'm a children's author. But the example I always use is when I moved out to Barrel, we moved from Sydney out to Barrel about um, five years ago, and uh, our refrigerator wouldn't fit into our new kitchen uh, because the hole for the refrigerator was just a little bit smaller. So I had to go down to Bingley and order a new refrigerator. So I, I measured the spot. I went down and measured the refrigerators, and I got one that was going to fit. And they, the guys brought it around a couple of days later. They delivered it and they brought it in. But I hadn't allowed for the skirting board at the bottom. So there's like a centimetre and a half either side. And so the fridge didn't quite fit. And being country guys and, you know, having all the time in the world, they're like, don't worry, love, we'll get it in for you. 
So these two blokes in their high vis, they stood there in my kitchen for 20 minutes. And I was like, don't worry about it. I'll just rip the skirting board out. You go home and I'll get it. And they're like, no, love, we're going to do this for you. And they stood there and they just jiggled it one millimeter at a time. Jiggle, 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 jiggle. And it took them 20 minutes. And eventually, jiggle, 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 jiggle. They got it. And they're like, there you go, love, it's in. But don't you ever drop anything down the back because you'll never see it again. <laughs> and I said to them, I said, well, that's great. Now when I murder someone, I'll have somewhere to hide the murder weapon. <laughs> and they just looked at me like, Oh my God. And they're like, Oh, we'll be going now. And so, so that's my example of my brain comes up with inappropriate things that I really should keep to myself. So it's best that I don't go out in public too much. <laughs> I can only imagine this has inspired some of the creations of your characters that we're going to get to later as, as well. <laughs> well, Nanny Piggins is basically me, all the things I say and would like to do. But if I did say or do them, I would get arrested. Whereas if you're a, a pig, you can get away with it. Which, which therefore begs the question that so you, you've come off this run of political satire. Mm. You know, you're working for um, uh, Peter Burner on Backburner yeah. program and doing some other bits and pieces here and there and uh, on SBS. Life support, life yeah. Life support, yeah. etc. Um, and then you make the move to a co production with Jim Henson's company, which yes. is Bambaloo, <laughs> which right. is a kids program in yeah. 2003. So, how did you end up there? And at <gasps> what point did you say, now's the time to put this in and put myself into restraints? Oh, I know. I remember the day I got the job, I was really upset because I, I so strongly identified as like a political satire writer. And I honestly thought, and I still do think I'm really good at that. And I just assumed that that would be something that someone would always want political satire writers and there would always be work. But I, you know, obviously TV has sort of shrunk and it's, it hasn't been the case. So there wasn't a lot of money working for life support. So I was just basically, and also we would write for 10 weeks and then you've got another 40 weeks of the year. So I was just trying to make ends meet. And um, someone often said, do you want to come in for a meeting to work on this kid show? And I'm like, oh, not really, but I need the work. And, you know, so I went in and they, they were really good because I had no experience in that field. And they said, the only way we can find out if you're any good is to give you a script. And I'm like, okay. So they gave me a script. And, and it's one of those things where you only realize in hindsight what a fantastic break that was because it was a really good turning point for me. But I know at the time I was completely ungrateful and didn't appreciate it. I went outside, I was all tears, like, I'm going to be a children's writer. I don't know anything about children. I was like 24 at the time. <laughs> how did you have to change? Like, how do you therefore write for children? Is it that you've got to have a life lesson in every episode? You do have to find a reason for good and bad? Um, I don't really think of it that way. I always just think about being entertaining. And because um, the thing I always say is children are every bit as intelligent as adults. It's just they haven't lived as long on the earth, so they don't know as much stuff yet. So they don't have as big a vocabulary and uh, they haven't developed ideas about, you know, adult themes, about some things. But they, they're smart. So I, I just think, I don't really think about it that way. I think because I'm emotionally stunted at about the age of 10, I just write naturally. And people say, oh, you're so good, you don't talk down to kids. It's like, I'm not really thinking about it. I'm just writing what I want to write. It just so happens that it's suitable for 10-year-olds. Yeah, I'd be more stuffed if I was trying to write for adults because I don't think I've got the emotional depth. You then went on and, and continued in kids' TV. Yeah. You, you've then gone. And, it's like dozens which, of shows. Yeah. Now. yeah. I mean, your IMD, IMDb list is, is Yeah, and that doesn't even have all of them. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I mean, you've written for a lot of cartoons as well, and most recently things like The Deep and, um, and Oh Yuck, which sounds like a great TV program. That was program. really interesting to work on Oh Yuck because um, it's really science-based. So I learned all this cool stuff. That's one of the cool things about working on TV is you get to research all this stuff. Like the deep, we I learned all about the Catatumba storm system off 
Venezuela or somewhere where they've had this storm going nonstop for 300 years, electrical storms. And for, oh, yuck, I had to learn all about um, zombie parasites. There's like wasps that sting cockroaches and then control them to like cocoon themselves with their eggs so that when their eggs hatch, they've got something to eat. There's, there's so much weird stuff that you get to learn when you work for, because when you write for adults, it's all, you know, who's in love with who. And it's like, oh, everyone knows that. But I know about zombie parasites and I had to learn all about um, the, the gut brain um, axis and all sorts of cool stuff. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah, It sounds like the sort of thing that kids naturally in that gooey, icky sort of. Oh, oh yeah. And, and of course, they're totally into it at that age. It's just so like, much disgusting. To as to well. Yeah, like <laughs> they love all that stuff. I, I was really skeptical for because I had I was writing children's television for years before I actually had children, and people would be like, you know, you know, you have to do fart jokes and bum jokes. And I'm like, I am not doing that. I have not got it in me. But now I've got a six year old. It's like you can't deny she really likes anything involving bottoms. She finds hysterical. <laughs> but bottoms are funny. Well, apparently, I mean, I didn't see it, but my six year old, she just it's not just that she giggles. She's just like rolls with laughter anything involves someone's trousers falling down or anything so nanny piggins seem to be created out of the the restrictions shall we, shall we say of kids it, TV yeah either. it very much was it came out of the restrictions of um bambaloo because it was when i was on bambaloo that i first came up with the concept because i thought it'd be a tv show because it just used to drive me nuts that there was all this stuff about there's so many regulations particularly in preschool tv and you know you can't you can't say bored you can't say stupid you can't say lies and uh, like I, we were doing craft you had to have a craft um, item in every episode you know like they do on um, play school they make everything out of toilet rolls like villages and people and so I made like a car out of toilet rolls and they had a childhood advisor whose name, job description really should have been fun police because they just <laughs> sucked the fun out of every script and she said oh Rachel you can't possibly have a car made out of toilet rolls in your episode because it will encourage children to be unhygienic. I'm like, what? That's just ridiculous. Like as if a kid is going to use the toilet roll to wipe their bottom, let alone a toilet roll with gaffer tape and pipe cleaners sticking out of it. That would just hurt. So, And I just stuff like that. It's just like, oh, you're kidding me. So Nanny Pickens was very much born of, I just wanted to write something that was just fun and that kids would, that was funny and that was purely about entertaining children. Well, Nanny Piggins herself is, is essentially charismatic, boisterous, and deeply narcissistic as well. That's harsh, but true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she is. But she's also, she's so brave and she's so kind and loving to the children, which is something that they haven't got in their life. And she's a great lateral thinker. Like she just comes up with these things like if it's so important for children to be outside and get out in time outside, why would they go and sit in a classroom five days in a row? That obviously doesn't make sense. Well, well, I should pull them out of school regularly. Well, she finds it offensive that the, the, the government forces children to go to school five yeah. days a week. Well, she hates hypocrisy. So the fact that they can hold those those two view, view, viewpoints just offends her. Now, now Nanny herself um, is the world's most famous flying pig. The world's most glamorous flying Glamorous, pig. sorry, yeah. yes. She yes. is also the most famous, but yes. Yes. But she walked away from the circus so because she wanted, well, she got tired of being shot out of a cannon. No, she was angry with the ringmaster because he wouldn't provide chocolate biscuits in the break room and she just had enough. Like he was a real tyrant and that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. So she hijacked an elephant and um, smashed through a fence and ran off. 
and tried to hide from him. Ends up with the Green family, yes. to which, which there are three children, and Mr Green himself is, is rather absent and yes. for reasons known as such as he just doesn't like his children. Yes. See, people find that shocking. And people would, like when it was published in America, they're like, you have to tone the dad down because dads aren't like that. And I'm like, when did you grow up? Because growing up in the 80s, everyone's dad was like that, you know? And I, I like my dad, you would not see him during the week because he would go off to work at seven in the morning and come back at like seven at night. And on the weekends, he would fall asleep on the couch and snore loudly. And there was only one TV in the house and it was right in front of the couch. And so we just like, oh. Like this, this man basically was ruining our lives, the one leisure period we get of the week, and we can't watch TV because he's snoring loudly. But I went and did a presentation at a bookstore and I was doing like a book launch and I was explaining the idea of the show and I said, you know, you know here's the children, here's the nanny, and I said, they've got this dad who just works all the time and when he's not working, he's napping on the couch at home. Does anybody here have a parent like that? And my daughter was sitting in the front row and she put her hand up and she said, yes, you. And I thought, oh my goodness, oh. she's right. Cause I did, I was like a workaholic who just napped all the time. I thought I am Mr. Green. <laughs> but there's a, there's a dangerous precedent for, for um, absent parents in kids adventures. You look at things like the famous five, you have no idea where their parents are. Oh, you do. George's father is horrible. He's like a academic and he gets his office soundproofed so he can't hear the children. And at one point she gets left an island that has all this gold bullion on it. And um, he decides he's going to keep it for, you know, some purpose of his own. Like he's a wicked bad man. And they send them off to boarding school. It just makes it easy to have good plots if you yeah. get rid of the parents. Yeah, and, and that seems to be the same issue with Friday Barnes in the fact that all her family's over in Switzerland. Yes, <laughs> they end up all in Switzerland. <laughs> the most neutral place for the most neutral family ever. Yeah, well, I went to, um, I went to James Roos, so there was a lot of nerdy kids there but also nerdy kids who had nerdy parents at home and so and parents who were very caught up in their research and what they considered the most important thing in the universe which was whatever their obscure branch of science was so that type of person was quite familiar to me i mean other people find it strange but to me i knew, i can think of lots of people who are like that who are academics who have this idea well what if we just let our children raise themselves you know it worked for romulus and remus why can't it work for my children it's like okay <laughs> Looking at Nanny Piggins, though, she, she's got a real sense of anarchy about her. She is quite anarchic. Um, and I wonder about the influences on you when you, what you were watching and reading growing up, because reading the first book, there are times where it actually reminded me of sort of almost like that comedic violence of someone like The Young Ones. <laughs> I had not made that connection before. I, I didn't watch The Young Ones a lot when I was younger because I think it was on late and my parents, but I have watched it. Um, I'm a huge Dawn French and, and Jennifer Saunders fan, but I'd say it's very influenced by... Um, Roald Dahl, like I loved Roald Dahl's books and um, yeah, I don't know. Again, which is rebellious children and yeah. absent parents or dim-witted parents or dim-witted adults. Um, yes, yeah, well, there's all sorts of types of wicked parents and adults and just evil teachers in, in those books. But, um, but also, like my parents are English, so they were really keen when I was growing up, again, no internet or anything, to expose me to what they valued in English culture. So as a result, I was always forced to watch Faulty Towers whenever it was on television. I had to watch all the Monty Python movies. We had like Monty Python cassettes that we would play endlessly in the car. And some of them were wildly inappropriate. Like back in, looking back on it in hindsight, as a six-year-old, I knew this, the words to all these very inappropriate songs that Monty Python had penned. But so I did grow up very much with that sort of British humour. So, yeah, that probably has been a big influence. The goodies are a huge influence as well. I mean, anyone my age 
has watched every episode of The Goodies probably 7,000 times. Yes, yes. Because I wonder about when you're writing Nanny Pickens, it, it has the same setup as a joke in the sense that there's, there seems to be there's content or, sorry, context, then there's the, the feed line and the punch line, which is that you're setting her up to go in one direction and she immediately goes in a direction you didn't see coming. And the, and the point that had me roaring with laughter on a bus the other day was where Mr Green comes home and asks for Nanny Piggins' assistance in attending a ball yeah. because the person he's meant to go to the ball with has fallen down some stairs and broken her legs. And when he says, Nanny Piggins, I need your help, her immediate response is to break her arms. <laughs> That's just that just makes sense to me. That just follows on that idea. See, this is a problem. I'm saying my brain makes these connections. <laughs> it's not it's not like a conscious thing because I type really really quickly, so it just flows out. And then afterwards, I go back and I surprise myself that my brain comes up with these things. <laughs> now, every author likes to get a book, a good quote on the front of their book, especially importantly on their very first book. Yeah. What did you do though to get your first book cover quote? Well, I was I went in and met at, at Random House as it was then, and the, my publisher said, Rachel, you have so many celebrity friends in, this, in TV. Why don't you get one of them to write an endorsement for your book? And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. And I was walking out, and I was thinking of all the celebrities I knew, and I thought none of them are going to do that. They're, they're just, they wouldn't. They, yeah, that's, comedians are all messed up people. They'd never agree to it. So I thought I'm going to write to the five most famous people I admire so I wrote to um, J.K. Rowling, Hillary Clinton, Jermaine Greer, George Bush Sr., because he'd come out against broccoli, so I knew he had a thing against vegetables, and Madeleine Albright. And 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 um, I got replies from Jermaine Greer and Madeleine Albright, but Jermaine Greer said no, but she wrote, we had a little bit of funny correspondence. She was very nice. and But Madeleine Albright, she, she I, one morning I just woke up, and like, you got to understand, I, you know, as a mum, I had a little baby. I was just tired all the time. And I went out to my desk in the living room and I turned on my computer and there was an email from Madeleine Albright's secret secretary with a scan of a letter from Madeleine Albright. And I nearly died of a heart attack. My, my chest was going boom, 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 boom. It was just, it's just, I couldn't believe it. It's still the most amazing thing that's happened. I think the last thing you should say, though, for our listeners is exactly who was Madeleine oh, Albright. Oh, Madeleine Albright. You see, that's the problem. No one appreciates. I appreciate it. She was the first woman Secretary of State in the United States. <laughs> and um, she's an amazing woman. I had read her books and, like, you should read her a memoir. It's really, she's a really interesting life story. You know, an immigrant made, who, who, who made good, who, who through education uh, rose to the highest level of you She know, was office. one of the most powerful women in the world. Yeah, she's like negotiating peace in the Middle East and doing all sorts of amazing things and... Um, yeah, and it wasn't that long after uh, she'd been in office when I wrote to her, so it was just, it's pretty mind-blowing. But the problem is, because uh, I'm a comedy writer, no one believes it's true. They think I just made it up, and uh, children have no idea who she is. <laughs> so it doesn't, doesn't do me any good, but it made for a very, very happy day for me. <laughs> My brother actually met her a few, like about two years ago, because uh, he's like a hedge fund guy in Hong Kong and she was doing some speaking tour. So he went and had, you know, the official photo taken with her and he needed to make conversation. He said, you once endorsed my sister's book. And she's like, oh, I remember. Because <laughs> when I wrote the letter asking for her, could you please kindly, you know, write a blurb for the back of my book? I, I wrote this letter and I said, I think you're going to enjoy reading my book because it's going to be way less miserable than most of the books people send you to endorse. <laughs> And she wrote back, she said, you are entirely right. I get sent some very grim books. So, yeah, anyway, like 
10 years later, she still remembered it when she oh, met my brother. That is just wonderful, just wonderful. But yes, what a wonderful, generous lady. <laughs> now, you, have, you do take Nanny Piggins with you when you go and speak yes, across the country and, in, and overseas as well. Yes. She's quite a boisterous puppet. Oh, I love the puppet because like, cause she can say things I can't. And sometimes, because like, I do probably like 100 school visits a year, and like 90 of, the, of those would go really well, five of them a bit rough, and then five of them the kids are just, you know, they're, they're a handful. And the thing, the thing is I know at the end I think, I'm going to get Nanny Piggins out at the end of this one, and she just goes the kids. <laughs> She like they'll ask something like, "Why don't you have legs?" Because she's a puppet. He's like, "Why are you looking up my skirt? How dare you look up my skirt?" <laughs> and they'll say, "Do you eat bacon?" And she's like, "Oh, how dare you? Do I say do you eat fried human?" And so she's like, she literally just and and I'll say to the kids at the beginning, I'll say, "So I'm gonna do my presentation and I'm gonna sing a song and then I'm gonna get Nanny Piggins out and she's gonna yell at you for about five to ten minutes. Would you like that?" And they're all like, "Yes." <laughs> So does this tap into your your need to to, to get to abuse children? Well, <laughs> to to perhaps get the um the stand up comedian out. Yeah, well my 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 um my author presentation has very much because I've been doing it for like nine years now, and it's very much become a stand up routine where you get your stories down pat and you get your little one liners and even you get your heckle lines and you, it yeah it it it's really evolved into something. It's been a lot of fun and I've got a song and rockets and, um, yeah, it's really good fun. And we get, cause I just never imagined I'd get to do so much travel doing this because you think authors like sit at home, but I do like about 10 trips a year and get to go all over the country, go to America once a year. I'm going to New Zealand in um, March and, um, it, it's just, it is an amazing thing and go around and talk and yell at children all, and all these places. Kids often are brutal in their feedback though. They can be desperately honest. They, they can, yes, but, but I'm even more brutal. <laughs> the thing is you want to be good fun, but you want to be slightly menacing <laughs> so that they don't go too far. But, yeah, you always get some kid. And oh, they send you emails telling you, oh, and, you know, on page 67 of your fifth book, I found a spelling mistake and, yeah, it's like, oh, okay, please. <laughs> <laughs> so do you ever have words with the parents themselves afterwards? Like, look. I try to avoid. This has to stop. Although sometimes the parents are really excited to meet me because um, parents enjoy reading my books to their kids because it's because oftentimes some of the I mean I've got little kids and I know some of the books you read them that they love are very painful for the adults to read and so parents will come up to me and say oh thank goodness we love your books I actually enjoy reading them to my kids so sometimes and sometimes you get um, families that are split up and like the kids go and stay with dad for the weekend. And that's the thing that they do together is they, and it's, you can see it's like a really special thing for them. And so that's really nice. And the dad will bring, like I've had events in Sydney where the dad's brought like four girls, you know, his daughters and their friends from Canberra or something. You think, Oh, that's great. That it means so much to their family. You know, my stupid drivelings from my brain. It must be really lovely um, to actually know that there are kids growing up with your books, that that you will be their author. It's terrifying. It really is. I try to think about it as little as possible, like, because in my life, in my world, I'm just the embarrassing mum and I'm, you know, Rachel who yells too loud at the other people at the gym to encourage them. And, and I'm like this dag person, this scruffy, daggy person living in the country town. And that's my image of myself. And so when people, you know, you find out the sales figures and then people write you like, I love you so much, your books mean so much to me. And it's like, oh, I find that much harder to believe. 
Like it's almost like this is someone else. I actually think of myself as two people, like Rachel Spratt, the real person, and R.A. Spratt, this person who I don't quite understand what's going on. But anyway. Is it therefore much easier just to be Nanny Piggins? <laughs> like there's a separate person. I guess so. I don't really know what my brain does. But it's, it's hard at the, when you're writing for the day. Like I haven't written Nanny Piggins for a couple of years now. But at the end of the day of writing, whatever you're writing, it's hard to like change the gears in your brain back to being a normal person. Like, and to get out of the world of fiction, you're sort of like crawling out of a, a long tunnel to get back out and be able, like people will speak to you and it's like, someone's speaking to me. Now they're waiting for me to speak. I must think of something to say and it can't be a Nanny Piggins voice. <laughs> you, you moved on from, you sort of retired and I shouldn't say retired. You, you postponed any future book for Nanny Piggins. Oh, well, I'm always open to it. Um, I did do a, a short story for, there was a compilation of, stories about cats and I did a short story for that I mean I love Nanny Piggins but it's just it's just pure economics like I wrote nine books children can't afford to buy ten books and um so sales were sort of dropping so they wanted me to come up with a new concept like I, I would have happily written another Nanny Piggins every year for the rest of my life but um so yeah I moved I did move on because of that and it, did, it broke my heart at the time but um but yeah I'm open to coming back to it if anyone ever wants me to and there's this talk there may be a tv show we'll see Wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Yeah, that would be good. So, so then you came up with Friday Barnes, yes. the eleven-year-old detective, um, and this seemed to be born out of a need or a response to children, uh, girls specifically, reading a lot of your books and and this desire to give them a character who almost reflected themselves. Is that true? Well, I'm. I see you're, you're projecting these um, motives onto me that are much more worthy than my actual motives. <laughs> my, my actual motives are always, how can I make more money? I need, I need money. I need the children you choose. And um, so literally, like Nanny Piggins finished and I thought that was fantastic. I'm really proud of my work, but I didn't sell enough books, particularly towards the end. What can I do with my next series to sell more books? So I did market research, which for me means going to Big W, standing in the book section, because Big w, is a, Big w is the biggest bookseller in Australia, so you want to be able to sell in there. And I looked around and thought, what sells? And um, romance novels sells, but detectives books sell. So you think, Agatha Christie made a lot of money. So I think, ah, and Sherlock Holmes and all that. So I think, ah. And the, the thing I thought with Nanny Piggins was, part of the problem was kids would read the first few books and then they would borrow the other books from the library. And it's like, I don't make any money from that. So... <laughs> So I thought, what I'm going to do is, with my new series, I will pit, put massive cliffhangers at the end of every chapter so the kids can't put the book down, because you can with Nanny Piggins, they're short stories. So put cliffhangers at the end of every chapter so they're just dragged through the book. And then at the end of the book, have a massive cliffhanger that just leaves them going, oh my goodness, what happens next? And then when the next book comes out, they'd be like badgering the booksellers, when's the next Friday Barnes coming out? I must have it. Like, there's no waiting for it to be at their library. You know, no, I can't. And it it totally totally worked and I knew I was a success when um I got a hate tweet from a mother saying thanks to you R.A. Spratt I mean she was joking but she said thanks to you R.A. Spratt my daughter missed the bus to school this morning because she'd been sitting at the bus stop reading the book and she was so engrossed in the book she hadn't noticed the bus <laughs> and drive <laughs> off with the other kids without her and I thought yes and then all these booksellers like oh the week before your next book comes out, children come in and they weep in, with anxiety. They want, and I'm like, yes, <laughs> that's what I want to hear. So that's that's where the idea of the cliffhangers and the mysteries. And then I just thought, you know, like I've always loved Sherlock Holmes, 
I thought, well, what if you made Sherlock Holmes an 11-year-old girl? And then all the characters just started to flow from that because you just saw the pieces start to come together. The interesting thing is that crime novels themselves are usually about adult crime for obvious yeah. reasons, and they're usually horrific in nature. Yes. <laughs> so there, how, how did you take that and then go, right, so what's important to an 11-year-old? Exactly. Well, you've got to do that because you can't have any violence. You can't even have people bonking each other on their head with a rock or anything. And uh, it made it seem so hard to come up with eight books of, worth of crimes for children. Um, but, yeah, you just got to remember, when you're a kid, you get so upset about the stupidest things. Like, And my children do as well, you know, I didn't get to be library monitor mummy. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's so, so terrible. I feel so bad for you. <laughs> but it's all like missing homework. And things. But you think if you write it properly... Kids can understand that to that kid, this is really serious. Like this is the biggest, worst thing that's ever happened to them. Or like I might get expelled or even just they might call my mom if they, you know, and tell her what I've done. That's huge to kids. So you just have to sort of think from their perspective. But it was hard. And I went back and did all this research. I read like Trixie Belden, Nancy Drew, and I read Encyclopedia Brown. And you think that was only like 20, 30 years ago. And they have so much better crimes. Like the kids are walking around with guns in the street. And you think, I wouldn't get away with any of this now. And Sally punches people. And you think, I can't have my characters punch people. So it is a challenge. So, you, But you do seem to equip her with quite the vocabulary and also a lot of sarcasm. That seems to be her actual weapon. Yeah, you see, they actually try and get me to use less big words. It was an, it was an issue around about book three, four, five. They're like, before they realised it was going to be a huge phenomena, they're like, can you just not use so many big words? And I'm like, I don't use big words. I just talk normally. And they're like, and then they would go through and show me the words. I'd be like, okay, okay. <laughs> but it's funny because secretly the editors liked big words too. So one of the books they would go through and they literally picked out like the 12 longest words in the book. So one of the books they want, words they wanted me to cut out was scuttlebutt. You know, instead of gossip, I put in scuttlebutt because I thought it's a nice word. I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. It's beautiful. It's on a matter of And I always say, if children don't know that word, they need to learn it now. And they're like, get rid of the word. I'm like, oh, fine. And then I was reading the book later. They let me keep in Sisyphean, you know, like, which is like a reference to Sisyphus the, from Greek mythology. And I'm like, that's way more obscure than Scuttlebutt. But the thing, but I asked the editor about it. It's like, why do you let that one through? She said, I just really like the words because I like Greek mythology because she's an English nerd too. I was like, oh, I see. I see the way the wind blows. But they've given up now. They just let me use whatever words I like. Well, there is a beauty in kids' writing and kids' books as well when there are words that kids don't know because it sends yeah. them on a path of discovery. Exactly. And they've all got Google. They can find out. You know, they, they don't have to strain themselves by flicking through a dictionary. But yeah, how are they going to, like there's a, there's a, um, there's a, in the first book, there's a line where uh, Fudge the dog eats someone's dinner and Friday says, your, your dinner sitting on that plate in front of an open window was tantamount to entrapment. Fudge could not resist. So tantamount and entrapment are words most kids wouldn't know. But the very next line is Fudge could not resist. So from the context they know perfectly well what I mean and it probably hasn't even registered to their brains I don't know what those words are because they would have skimmed through it and completely got the meaning. But those little words are now lodged in their brain. So I'm doing a public service, I think. I remember talking to a comic book writer who was working on Batman comics at the time and he was working, he'd written quite a few comics that featured the Riddler 
And yeah. of course, the Riddler has these immensely complex um, series of riddle, riddle me this, this. boy wonder. That's yeah. right. He has these immensely complex sort of crimes that are all built around various clues and obviously riddles. And the question to him at the time was, do you come up with the riddle first or the clue first or do you come up with the crime? So I put the same question to you. Yeah, you sort of come up with the twist first. So you come up with um, what the revelation is going to be, like the clever thing that she comes up with. And then you would plot backwards to get to that point. And then you, but you have to do it in a way that you don't tip your hand so that the reader doesn't know. It's actually, it's kind of boring because you know what the result is and you're all the time thinking, I hope they don't get this. They must be idiots if they don't get this. But then they, you find they read it and they go, oh, I didn't pick that. You're like, really? Because you know all along because you came up with the idea. But, um, yeah, it is like a backward process. Do you test any of your work out with any of the kids you know or kids yeah, in your life? Yeah, I, I talk to my children. I tell them the stories like verbally sometimes because oftentimes if you've got a story and you can't explain it, like tell it as a verbal story, it's like, you know, they say with uh, good songs, if it doesn't sound good just singing it with an acoustic guitar, it's probably not a good song. And it's the same with a story, like what, what you see as a chapter for a book. If you can't tell it as a good story and hold a child's attention, probably not going to make a good chapter in the book. So I do do that sometimes with the kids because sometimes they ask and sometimes, you know, they're behaving badly in the car and be like, oh, do you want to hear the story I wrote today? Yeah, so, yeah, I do do that sometimes. Well, Friday Barnes has been a huge hit for you, as you've yes. said. So, so what do you think it is that really broke her internationally? I don't know. I think it's the mysteries and um, girls, girls like an aspirational figure and they like so, – see, one of the things in publishing is – People are always trying to write books that appeal to reluctant readers. Like It's like boys are reluctant readers and kids who like sport are reluctant readers. But the thing is the people who buy the most books are enthusiastic readers. So what I did was I wrote a character about a girl who likes reading books, which really appeals to girls who like reading books, who are the people who buy the most books. So it's just been a brilliant piece of marketing because they're the ones who buy the most books and they bought the books very enthusiastically. So, um, yeah, that kind of, uh, I just, it hadn't, it's one of these things, it didn't occur to me at the time, but in hindsight you think, yeah, that was kind of genius, just like figuring out who the biggest demographic for buying books is and just catering straight to them. She's a very popular character for someone, though, who is particularly socially inept. Yeah, but I think a lot of children feel socially inept. I mean, even kids who aren't, who are quite ept, they, they still feel, like, like ch children feel the little humiliations. They'll go home from school where, you know, 99% of the day is fine, but one person said one thing to them at lunchtime that made them feel small, and that's just like a weight, an anchor around their neck. So I think everyone can identify with the kid who just doesn't say appropriate things and who puts their foot in it and who rubs people up the wrong way. Well, Sherlock Holmes himself was a particularly awful character at times. Yeah, he was basically dead inside emotionally. <laughs> um, the heroine may have had something to do with that, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. But, yeah, it is an interesting thing. I don't, I don't know what a psychologist would diagnose him as having. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's definitely but he's someone who has no social skills but is brilliant. I think we can all think of someone like that, someone who is brilliant at what they know but just cannot rub along with people. It's a bit like Sheldon from The Big Bang or something like that. And then they've got, like, Dr. Watson is a very clever man. He's a doctor, but everyone likes him. So, that, so you offset it nicely. Well, the lead is often determined by their co-stars. You, you yeah, have built yeah. this wonderful world of friends around Friday Barnes, even to the individuals like just, I think it's Patel who just gets thrown out of class constantly. <laughs> yes. You know, and he seems Patel, to be, out! That's it. it seems to be his whole function is just to get, get into trouble. Get thrown out, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and yet reading it, you sort of go, oh, I remember that kid. 
Yeah, 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 exactly. And Parker, who who is an idiot. Like, you know, that's another thing. Children are not allowed to call each other idiots. When my daughter was um was little, we were walking home from school one day, and uh, this motorist started yelling at a kid in front of me because he'd thrown a rock at a car. And then she t- had to go at me because she thought I was his mum. And I'm like, oh, I'm not his mum, but you swear it in front of my kid, and I don't like it. And she's like, ah, you stupid b word, and you you um idiot, and all this. And when I got home, my daughter said to me. Mummy, she called you the E word. And I'm like, what's the E word? She's like, idiot. And I was like, that's great because she thought that was a swear word and she didn't know how to spell it. <laughs> yes, it's like, here's an opportunity to educate you about two things. Yes. <laughs> Good. Um, you've said, or at least I've read that you've said that you, you worry about letting your characters down in the sense that you see them as 3D real people. I do, I do, because you think, I remember, you know, I remember having an argument with my daughter where she's like, Nanny Pickens isn't real. I'm like, she is real. And then she's like, no, she's not. I was like, she is. Like, she's not just real to me. And like these characters, I've sold like half, over half a million books and they've probably been read by more than half a million children. And there's, half a, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of words and they have like immersed themselves into this world. To them, she is real and she's a three-dimensional creation. So for me to stop writing her or to write her badly is it's almost like allowing a child to cease to exist, which just would be so wrong. So I do feel I have this enormous responsibility to the, the continuation of them as an entity because they mean so much to me and they mean so much to these children and they are wonderful. They are wonderful and I would hate for them to let them down. The Friday Barnes team reminded me when reading through the books of a little bit of Velma and Daphne from Scooby Doo and, and, you know, and some of the other great partnerships and, the, and Nancy Drew, etc. Um, and the reason I mentioned Scooby Doo is because I kept waiting for the reveal for someone to say, I would have got away with it if it wasn't for you pesky kids. <laughs> Which is my next series. Which is your next series. <laughs> yes. That really appealed to me. <laughs> like I tell everybody else about it, I say, it's called the Pesky Kids because the kids, their name is Pesky and they're Pesky and everyone looks at me blankly like, I was like, it makes me laugh. <laughs> I don't care about the rest of you. But, yeah, that's my next series. I'm halfway through writing the first one and um, I hope it works out. You never know at this stage. My husband always tells me off. He says, whenever you're writing a book, you come to me halfway through and you say, I think this book is a steaming pile of poo. It's awful. It's the worst book I've ever written. And it never is. It's always a staggering work of genius. And I'm like, ah. Oh. So anyway, I hope this one works out, but it, it is about um, two boys and a girl. It, they, their surname is Pesky, and they move to a country town, and uh, they get like the famous five, they end up getting involved in mysteries and stuff. So. Well, I've read that you said that you've, and this was during your time of sort of finishing up the Friday Barnes run, and you said you're interested in writing about brothers because you like the dynamic between the two, the way they talk to each other. What do you mean by that? Well, I was working on the Skinner Boys, which is a television show about three brothers and their cousin, a girl, and just the way brothers talk to each other, like, they're, they're just chip, 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 like sledging in cricket, like sledging, like constantly. And I found that really, really fun. So I thought, I want to do that, but... But more realistic even than what you're allowed to do on TV because you think when you write a book, what you want to do is you want to create drama and tension. And you think there is no more drama and tension than between brothers and sisters because you think, like my kids, I'd go down to the living room and they'd be like, Mommy! 
And I'm like, what? what? What's happening? <gasps> Violet is looking at me. <laughs> and I'd be like, with her eyeballs? Oh, no, let me call the police. You think, so if you can generate conflict out of looking at someone, you can create conflict out of anything. So I just thought, and I know my own brother, like I'm 42 and he's 44. And if I see him, the very first thing I say to him is, oh, you're going bald, aren't you? I say, and he's not going bald, but he's my brother. And that's how we express affection is to just constantly have a go at each other. That's that's the way brothers and sisters are. So I thought that's not adequately, adequately portrayed in literature, and I will redress that. <laughs> and so uh, is there more Friday to come? Well, officially no. Like the, the last book in the series, the eighth book, is coming out in January, and it does wrap up the series, but I don't like to end. I like cliffhangers. <laughs> so I did some bit of a tease because there is some talk that, in a couple of years, I might write a couple more, maybe with them jumping up in age to when they're at university. So we'll just see. Because, I mean, I love writing Friday um, and I'm open to writing more, but we'll just have to wait and see. I think I need a couple of years to come up with ideas too because the ideas are really hard to come up with. And would you ever consider writing for an older audience? Yeah, I've had ideas for adult books and I've had an idea for more of a sort of a, a, a literary, like a, more of a sort of intellectual sort of John Green kind of book dealing with sort of weightier issues. I'm not really, it's not really my thing because I'm such a frivolous person and silly, but I do have these ideas and I would like to develop them at some stage. And what about romance? Because it seems to be your preferred oh, genre. I love romance. I would like to write an adult romance novel, but I did have a go a few years ago at writing, before I wrote Nanny Piggins, I had a go at writing a Mills and Boone romance novel because I love Mills and Boone because it's so close to comedy writing and I just love it. And... Um, on, so you, I wrote, sorry, you have to explain that now. Well, it's just so silly. Like the, the, it's all like dukes and shakes in the desert and women who like sprain their ankles and oh, it's so much fun. But anyway, so I thought I want to write one because I love these books so much. So I, I wrote a romance novel where my idea was there was like an Italian duke and they're always like six foot four or six foot five. They could be very tall. He's very good looking and he's walking along the street and Oftentimes they've got the women have silly jobs. Well, not silly jobs, but they're, they're not high status jobs. So I thought I'm going to make her a PhD in archaeology. But she's coming home from a dig, so she's wearing really filthy clothes. So he thinks she's like a homeless street person. And they're walking towards each other and she gets mugged, like someone sprays mace in her face and steals a handbag. So the Duke, because he's Italian and very good looking, he sweeps her up into his arms and she's like, oh, oh, I can't see. And there's a Chinese restaurant right there that's got aquariums in the, the window with like abalone and stuff in it. And he whisks her into the restaurant and dunks her head in the aquarium. <laughs> and that's how they meet. <laughs> and I thought, that's such a great idea. It's so funny. And I send it off to Mills and Boone and they just write back and said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I will write a romance novel at some stage, but I it will just have to be like Bridget Jones. I have to be a comedy romance novel yeah. because I just can't not write comedy. Rachel, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you today. <laughs> and I look forward to every one of these pieces of work that you're promising They're right here and They're going to be fantastic. Now. They are. Of course they are. <laughs> Rachel, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you, James. And you can find Rachel on Twitter at RASpratt and via her official website. You can also look forward to the latest Friday Barnes on shelves from January. You can find me on Twitter at ConversationsWW and on Facebook. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening.